This morning, I want us to, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Daniel. And this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about consequences. In, in our society today, many people do not have a strong grasp of consequences. In other words, a lot of people don't have very much, if any, personal responsibility. And I think it's mainly because it's easier to, to blame others than accept consequences of our actions. Unfortunately, God does not work that way. The Bible is clear that we will ultimately answer for our actions, maybe not in this life, but certainly when we stand before God in judgment. I would venture to say that that this is probably not the, the number one topic around the world in churches today because a lot of pastors, ministers, teachers, and so on, they don't want to offend anyone with talk of consequences for deeds that we have done. The way I look at it, though, is this. If people don't know that there are consequences for sin, they will suffer for their actions. And I also believe that those who failed to warn them will suffer for not telling them. It would be be like if you went to the doctor, and the doctor found out that you had cancer, and yet when he sat down to consult with you, he said, everything looks just fine. He knew there was a problem, but he told you everything was just fine. And that, we would look at that and we would scream, malpractice. And what's going on and what I'm talking about here is spiritual malpractice. If we don't tell people, if we don't warn the world that there are consequences for the way that we live our lives, then that is spiritual malpractice. And what is even worse, if the doctor knew that there was a procedure to rid that person of cancer and still told them everything was okay, that's even worse. The good news is today that there is a procedure for the sin in our lives that will take it away forever. If we only talked about the consequences, it might seem kind of negative. But again, if the doctor told you you had cancer, but we can get rid of it, then that's good news. And today I have good news. You don't have to live with sin in your life, and you don't have to die with sin in your life, and stand before God in judgment for that sin. Throughout the Bible we see that there were several characters that suffered serious consequences for their sin. Just to name a few, there was the Pharaoh at the time of Moses. King Saul, the first king of Israel. King Ahab, one of the wicked kings of of Israel. He was the husband to Jezebel, and he lived around the time of Elijah. And that's just a few. But there are great examples of people who made bad decisions Decisions that had dire consequences to many people and ultimately to themselves. Another person in the Old Testament is a king we're looking at today. His name is Belshazzar. Another one of the kings of Babylon during the time of Daniel. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 7. Let's read that this morning. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for the thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now remember that right there. He gave them orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, the Babylonians had overrun Judah and the capital Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. And they stole all the stuff out of the temple and took it back to Babylon. So now Belshazzar's having a party, 
and he has them bring all this stuff out so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Big mistake. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand watched the hand as it wrote. That's scary. And his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. That's pretty scared. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That was better than the consequences that um, Nebuchadnezzar offered to his people. If you don't tell me, I'll kill you and cut you up in little pieces. But still, this is the story, and this is where we find ourselves now. Let's look at a little history. And this, this lesson actually goes almost like this, like a, a soap opera. So I want to put all the players in place so that we can understand and make sense of this this morning. Some of the things to put in perspective everything. King Nebuchadnezzar died in 563 B.C. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the one that had had a dream. He had his wise men come in. He said, not only do I want you to tell me what I dreamed, I want you to interpret it. And I'm not going to tell you what it was. They couldn't do it. So Daniel came in and interpreted the dream. And in return, he garnered favor for himself, his people, and for his God from Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5 that we just read takes place about 25 years after his death. Those that had succeeded Nebuchadnezzar after his death either died young or were assassinated. They didn't rule for very long. Eventually, Nabonidus, who had once seen Nebuchadnezzar and had married one of his daughters, seized the throne. Now, Nabonidus was the king, but because of his military campaigns, going out and conquering other people and his interest in other things other than ruling Babylon, Nabonidus was away from Babylon quite often. So what he did, he set his son up as like the assistant king. And his son's name was Belshazzar. So we see that, that King Nabonidus is now on the throne, but he's sharing his authority with his evil son, Belshazzar. And his son is evil. During the same time, the Persians, which was another mighty empire that was growing stronger and stronger all the time. You had the Babylonians that once ruled the world. Then you had the Persians who were going back and taking away some of these countries that the Babylonians had conquered, and they were getting stronger and stronger. So you had the Persians led by King Cyrus. They attacked the Babylon empire, and they defeat the troops led by King Nabonidus. So we had this big battle. King Nabonidus moves the main Babylonian army away from Babylon. He moves them away from the city. And King Cyrus of Persia goes to the city of Babylon, and he surrounds it and lays siege to the city. It's possible before Cyrus got there that some of the nobles and, and the, the higher-up people had escaped from the city for protection. So we see that the army is away. The Persian army has gotten to Babylon and surrounded it. 
and the city is under siege. But defeating the city was not going to be an easy task. Babylon, the city of Babylon, was an incredible city. It was protected by a massive double wall. Let me tell you how big these walls were. The Bible says, history tells us, that the walls were wide enough that four chariots could race on top of the walls side by side. That's a pretty thick wall. In addition to that, you think, well, here's this army that laid siege around them. Eventually, they're going to run out of food. The Bible in history also tells us that they had a food supply that would last 20 years. That's pretty amazing. I don't think I have enough food at my house to last 20 days. But 20 years worth of food for an entire city. And what, but what Belshazzar did not know, he's throwing a party in the middle of all this, right? What he did not know is that while he's doing all this stuff he's doing, one of the, the big things about the city of Babylon is that Euphrates River ran right through the city. So they had fresh water in behind the walls all the time. But while he was doing all this, King Cyrus and the Persians were surrounding the city, and he decides to throw a party. But what the Persians are doing is they've actually dug trenches into what would be kind of like a lake. And at any given time, all they had to do was break down the wall between the Euphrates River and these trenches, and the water would be diverted out of the city. Now what happens is the walls were built above the water. Once you drain the water out, you can just walk right under the walls. They didn't know this. Instead, he throws a party. And we look at that and we say, well, why would he throw a party? Could be a lot of things. He's behind these double walls that are huge, and he thinks, I'm safe. It could be that he was a weak leader and kind of a party boy, and he thought, when in trouble, throw a party and forget about your troubles. It could be that he was trying to revive the the attitude of, of some of the leaders in the city to encourage them, don't worry, everything's fine. Nothing to worry about, everything's just fine. And I know leaders never do that when things are bad. Another note in history is to put in, again, put in place, it's, it speaks of Belshazzar's father being Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. It was customary in those times to consider an ancestor a father. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was his father. It was just an ancestor. I mean, consider that Jesus was called the son of David, and David was called the son of Abraham, and they weren't direct sons. They were just descendants. So that puts into place, so we have all these people in place. We have Nebuchadnezzar, who had the dream. He has a son, Nabonidus. He has a son named Belshazzar. Nabonidus is away licking his wounds from a beatdown by the Persian army. The city's under siege, and the evil son throws a party. And that's where we are. During the party, Belshazzar 
calls for the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? They stole them, they're theirs. Here's the problem. These were the goblets from the temple that were used ceremonially by the priest. That's all they were meant to be. God had ordained these things to be built exactly in a certain way, and they were to be used for one purpose, and that was for the purpose of what was going on in the temple. And Belshazzar pulls them out to use in a party. The problem here is Belshazzar was so full of himself, he really didn't care. He didn't care that if there were consequences because he, all he was thinking is, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want and there are no consequences. And here's the part we have to remember. It doesn't matter who we are or to what level we ever attain, we will always have to pay, for, pay consequences for our actions, no matter how far we go in life. So these goblets have been made exclusively for the worship of God, not for common use, and certainly not for a party. And certainly not for a party where they were used to celebrate false idols. And in their drunkenness, Belshazzar and his guests used them to praise Babylon's idols, therefore dishonoring the true God. Now here's something that's unusual, really, if you read back through the Bible. The response from God was immediate. A lot of times people would go out and do things and then it was way down the road somewhere that you would see that there was consequences that they paid. This was immediate. Belshazzar says, bring out those gold and silver goblets that we stole from the temple back in Jerusalem. They bring them out and start partying and offering toast up to their false gods. And boom, on the wall, this hand appears and starts writing on the wall. And he was scared. As he watches in horror... The fingers of this hand appear, and they write on the wall near his seat. And obviously he was seated near a lampstand, and it allowed him to read what the writing said, but he didn't understand what it meant. So he did like his grandfather had done when he had that dream. He called for his advisors. And he said, I want you to tell me what that means on the wall there. And he offered them a, a tremendous reward. He said, whoever tells me the correct interpretation will receive the third highest honor in the country. You'll be the third highest ruler in the land. That's pretty good. Because here you had Nabonidus was dad. He was the king. Belshazzar was the assistant king. And whoever interpreted what was on the wall was going to be third. In addition to that, he promised to clothe them with a purple robe and a gold chain. The thing about purple is purple was the color of royalty. It was regarded as a sign of extreme wealth. And mainly because in order to get that, that particular color purple that they used for the robes of the royalty in that day, it came only from a, the secretions of a certain shellfish. And that's the only way that you could get that particular color of purple. It's a purplish blue. So it made it very expensive. Again, I've mentioned this before. There's a, 
a show, an archaeology show on Sunday afternoons called The Naked Archaeologist. And it's, it's just amazing because they did a whole show on this, um, this shellfish die and how hard it was to get. And when you saw how exclusive this little bit of dye was, you see why it was only used by royalty. So the king says, whoever interprets this on the wall, I'll give you a gold chain and I'll give you a purple robe, which means when you walk around, everybody's going to know you're somebody. It ended up being quite a reward. Because if Belshazzar and his father died, that means that you were going to be king. Not bad for interpreting what's written on the wall. Daniel 5, 28, 25 through 28. This is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tikal, parson. And this is what these words mean. Mini, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Pretty to the point. Tikal, you have been found weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Hmm. Kind of to the point. Just as Nebuchadnezzar's court wise men could not interpret his dream, all of the people that Belshazzar called in, his enchanters, his astrologers, his diviners, they were unable to tell him what the writing on the wall meant to. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. The queen, now the queen would be Belshazzar's mother. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. That's funny. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So the queen, Belshazzar's mother, daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, hears all the noise, and she comes in and says, Just call Daniel. I've seen this before. Nobody else is going to figure it out. Call Daniel. And I would say she probably knew that because either she was alive when this happened to Nebuchadnezzar or she certainly heard the stories about it as the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar to say, when in doubt, call Daniel. Let's read verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself, give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And Daniel comes in and says, look, you can just keep your stuff or just give it to that guy over there. And I'll still tell you what it means. Meaning means numbered. He repeated it twice for emphasis. According to Daniel, it meant that the allotted time for Belshazzar to reign as king had run out. That's, that takes some nerve to stand in front of the king 
Now keep in mind, this is the same king that when his mother approached him, she made statements of honor towards the king. His own mother had to do that. And now here's Daniel, who is a slave, that says, oh, by the way, it means that you're done. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm sure that through Daniel's mind, he's, he's thinking, are you sure you really want to know what this means? But he, he just spoke right up. He said, that means your time's out. The second term, tekel, means weighed. This was a term of measurement, especially of, of judgment. Belshazzar had been set up opposite the just or accurate measure on a balance scale and had fallen short of God's standards. That's what he was saying. You've been weighed and you came up short. This passage alludes to the scales that were used at the time, in Daniel's time, in the marketplace. Scales were weighted with stones of varying sizes. It was important that all merchants use the, the same standard of weights because if you went to this guy for wheat and this guy for wheat, somebody had to set up a standard of saying, this is what you weigh it against. You put this many stones here, and then when you weigh it, it'll balance out, and that's how you know that everybody's getting the same thing. Dishonest merchants of that day used weights that gave the customer the impression that they were getting more than they'd paid for. So Daniel, in his, in his interpretation here, is saying that you have been placed on the scale. You have been weighed against God's measure. Here's the big scale. Here's God's measure over here. And here's you on this side. And King Belshazzar, he came up short. So your time is limited. You're done as king. God's weighed you against his scale of righteousness, and you're, you're short. But after all, when it comes down to it, the measurement against God's standard is all that matters. Too many times in our society today, and even, even through history and in the Bible we see it, that people compared themselves to others, and that's how they based their goodness. That was the downfall of the Pharisees. And Jesus blasted the Pharisees so many times just for that very thing. They would stand and pray in public, and their prayer would be, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy over there. That's right. When what Jesus was trying to get across to them is, you don't measure yourself by that guy over there. He's not the standard. The standard is the holy God that we serve. And that's what Daniel was proclaiming to the king here. He was saying, you've measured yourself. You thought you were just fine. But now you've been put on the, the righteous scale of God, and you've come up short. You've been weighed on the scales and have been found wanting. We need to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap. Because if we do, we will find ourselves like Belshazzar, that when we finally are measured against God's standard, and someday we all will be, when we are finally measured against God's standard, we too will come up short if we've measured on the wrong scale. Yeah, but, but you don't understand. My church teaches that it doesn't matter. If they don't teach what, says, what it says in this book here, 
when you are finally measured against what matters, you will come up short. All the other things. I'm sure that Belshazzar thought he was just fine. If he didn't think he was just fine, do you really think he would have gone and gotten the gold and silver goblets that were stolen from the temple and used them to party with? He thought he was untouchable. There's no consequences for me. I'm the king. I'm the second most powerful person in the world. I set my own standard. It's not the case. No matter how powerful, how rich, how popular we might become in this, this world here, at the end when we're judged, we'll all be judged on the exact same scale. Amen. And it won't be a scale of popularity. Be a, it will be a scale that this side is the righteousness of God, and we'll be placed on this side, and that's how we'll be judged. The third term was parson. In the King James Version, it's, it's euphorson. And the word used in the explanation of the writing was perez, and it meant divided. It also sounded similar in Aramaic to the word Persian. And I believe Daniel understood that it was, it was an allusion to the coming Persian victory. The mighty Babylon, Babylonian kingdom of Belshazzar and Nabonidus would soon be divided between the conquering Medes and Persians. But because they sat behind these walls that were double walls that were thick enough and wide enough for four chariots to race side by side, they felt secure. Daniel was given the rewards that the king had promised, even though he said he didn't want them. And then he rebuked Belshazzar for ignoring Nebuchadnezzar's example of humility. In verses 18 through 24, Daniel tells Belshazzar about his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells him that your grandfather was the most powerful man in the world. In fact, he was so powerful, if he wanted somebody to die... They died. If he wanted somebody to live, then they were allowed to live. He put to death who he wanted to put to death, and he allowed to live who he wanted to live. That's how powerful Nebuchadnezzar was. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. And he's talking to Belshazzar now about his grandfather. He's saying, your grandfather gave an example of something, and you missed the point completely. Now, it wasn't that... Nebuchadnezzar was such a good guy because we see that some bad things happened to him. What happened with Nebuchadnezzar is he got so caught up in himself that God humbled him. Remember, he was the most powerful man in the world, but God brought him down to a place to where he basically went crazy. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is Daniel describing the scene to Belshazzar of his grandfather. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. And he's telling Belshazzar, 
Don't you get it? Haven't you heard the stories of your grandfather, what happened to him? He was just like you. He was so caught up in himself, and he was so arrogant that he thought he could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, including when it came to God. And God brought him down to a place that was below all other men. He was like a wild animal out in the field. But there was hope for Nebuchadnezzar because when he acknowledged that God was the one that was sovereign, remember we talked about the sovereignty of God, meaning that he could do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And when he acknowledged that God was sovereign, God brought him back. And Belshazzar, you didn't learn that lesson. You saw it. You had an example. You heard the stories of it. And you saw how when he was arrogant, he fell, but God brought him back when he acknowledged God. And here you have done worse than your grandfather. At least he wasn't partying with the stuff out of the temple. And in verse 22, he directs his comments directly at Belshazzar and he says, but you refuse to humble yourself even though you knew all of this. That's powerful. I agree. Exactly. I, I, I agree with that 100%. I believe that's why he was not given a second chance because really he had already seen it. He had already heard what happens. That was his first chance. He had an example of his own family. And he chose to ignore it. Daniel goes on to say, You set yourself up against God of heaven and dared to defile the goblets that had been taken from the temple. You set yourself up against God. How could you do that? You worship gods of silver and iron, wood, and stone. And I like this. He said, Gods which cannot see or hear or understand. He basically told him right then, all those gods you were, you were worshiping, they don't exist, Belshazzar. They're just all in your head. They don't see you. They don't hear you. They don't understand what you're do doing. Yeah, like, like Elijah. Gods that cannot hear or understand, but even worse than that, you refuse to honor the one God who holds your life in his hands. Remember talking about Nebuchadnezzar, we, we saw that he acknowledged that he worshipped all these other gods, but at least he included the God of Israel in his worship of all the different gods. And Daniel was saying, as bad as your grandfather was, at least he acknowledged the one true God with all his other worship of the false gods. And what you've done differently, Belshazzar, is you don't even acknowledge the one true God that holds your life in His hands. That's what He said. Look at that last line. But you did not honor the God who holds in His hand your life in all His ways. All your ways. So in the meantime, while the party's going on, again, the Persians had dug these big trenches. They're not all the way to the river, they dug these trenches away from the river 
and into these lakes. And then right about now is when they took and broke down the wall between the river and the trenches, and the water starts diverting over to the lakes. And the wall that was once at water level, the water's dropping. And I'm sure there's some little kid in, in the, inside the city where this mighty Euphrates River had run through and said, hey, Mom, the water level's going down. I oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. They couldn't go tell the king because he was too busy having a party. And the Persians are standing outside the gate, outside these mighty walls that you could not break down, just waiting for the water level to drop. Because, see, they were going to take the city without ever breaking down a wall. Defeat of a mighty empire or a mighty nation doesn't always come in a battle. I'll save that for another Bible study. And once the water was down to the, the riverbed, they walked right under the walls of the city. And in verse 30, we see the consequences of Belshazzar's actions. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. The great city that night fell to the Medes and the Persians, just as Daniel had predicted. Exactly what he said. Belshazzar, the overconfident, cocky king who had dishonored God, died as the city fell. We know from this story and others in Scripture that God judges those that oppose Him. <coughs> Belshazzar showed none of the humility or respect for God that Nebuchadnezzar eventually showed. See, Nebuchadnezzar had his faults. But when it was pointed out to him, he turned around. And see, often with us in our lives, we, we have our faults and we do things that we should pay the consequences for. But then, fortunately for us, we're shown that God can forgive us. And, and when we do accept that, we turn around and we go forward in the way that God leads us. It's only when we take the attitude of Belshazzar that I don't really care. I'm in control of my own life. And there are so many people in society today that feel exactly like that. I am in control of my life. I believe in a God. Belshazzar believed in many gods. But there's people in our country today, in our society today, that say, I believe in God. I just don't want Him controlling my life. I'm not going to acknowledge that He is sovereign. And if you go back to the Scriptures we just read, what was the downfall of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar? They failed to acknowledge that God was sovereign. We as a country, we as a people, we as individuals, if we come to the place where we forget to acknowledge that God is sovereign, we will fall exactly the same way. And sadly, 
I would say our country is getting closer and closer to that all the time. Instead of coming back around and, and, and seeing the example of Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, and acknowledging, you know what, I saw the example, I saw what happened to my grandfather, so I'm going to turn around and acknowledge, at least acknowledge this God. Belshazzar took the things that were holy from the temple and he dishonored God, the true God, by using those implements from the temple to worship the false gods. And he failed to acknowledge the God that had his life in his hands. And we have to be careful, folks, that we don't do the same thing. Yeah, but I come to church and, and I believe in God and, and I do this. and But do we acknowledge the very God that has our life in his hand? Do we acknowledge him as the sovereign God, that He can do what He wants, when He wants, however He wants to do it. That He is the one that plans our future. He plans our next step. He plans our next breath. That we really aren't in control of our life. We can be. But when we take control of our life, we see that there are dire consequences for that. Non-believers are also in danger of, of suffering judgment, not only now, but eternally, if they oppose God for their entire lives. And you say, well, why? Well, because God holds their lives in His hands. Whether they admit it or not, the people that we come in contact with every day, whether they acknowledge there's a God or not, it doesn't change the fact that there is a God. Amen. I can tell you that, that that screen's not up there. I might even be able to convince you that that screen's not up there, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a screen right there. And there's people that go through their life, they might not believe that there is a God, they might be able to convince you that there's not a God, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a God. And it is the God that holds our lives in His hands. On August 17, 2008, Dave Freeman co-authored a book, A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. He died at the age of 47 from a head injury that occurred in a fall at his house. His book inspired the movie The Bucket List and some other lists that have been written since then. But it was all about things that you should do before you die. This is a hundred things I want to do before I die. And his own list included things like attending the Academy of Arts, running with the Bulls in Pamplona, Spain, taking a voodoo pilgrimage in Haiti. And the story drips with irony. Here's a story about a hundred things you want to do before you die, all of these fantastic journeys and all these great events and all these things, and he falls in his house and hits his head and dies. Irony. 
According to his family, Freeman had actually gotten to do only about 50 of the things on his list before he died. Reminding us that we may never accomplish all the things we hope to do in our lives. He took a knock on the head, died at a relatively young age, again reminding us that none of us know how many years we might have. 47 years old. Tragically, perhaps for Freeman, among the hundred things that Freeman and his co-author suggested that others do before they die, he did not include preparing for the day of judgment by entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. What should bring comfort to believers, to us as believers, is that God has everything under control and He will comfort and guide us when we ask Him. While that comforts uh, comforts us, it's often threatening to non-believers. Because people that don't believe in God or say He doesn't exist, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that God is in control. Because it threatens the way that I live my life. But even as believers, stay with me for a couple minutes, we are not free necessarily from committing acts that displease God. It is true that we live in a society that is mostly indifferent to God's righteous standards and deliberately opposes Him at some time. And I'm not saying that we as believers do that, that we just deliberately oppose God. But at times, if we're not careful... Many of us accept our culture's agenda and neglect the things of God or maybe even purposely act against Him in some way. And because we don't see immediate judgment like Belshazzar did, we may think that God's not going to judge us. But if we believe that, we're deceiving ourselves. We go out and we do something that, that we know in our heart was wrong and we go... Must have been okay. And nothing happens that time. And then again, we do something wrong and no lightning. No hand of God on the wall. exactly right it's exactly right i think that's that's one of the, the the biggest fallacies in in our country today is is our country has taken this turn towards away from god and because god didn't come down and and start smiting people with with the plague or something they think, well, everything must be okay. That's not the case. The consequences aren't always immediate.
what the fingers wrote on Belshazzar's wall. By the way, that's where that saying comes from. They saw the writing on the wall. Because that's the ultimate handwriting on the wall. What the fingers wrote on Belshazzar's wall condemned one of God's enemies. But the message also warns us to turn away from anything that diverts us from God's will. The same writing that was on that wall should speak to us today and say that's the consequences of turning away from God. We must instead pursue His will with all of our hearts and all of our minds. We have no other choice if we sincerely love Him. See, that's the thing. God doesn't force us to do anything. If we really love Him, we will do those things gladly. When we consistently refuse to follow God's direction, we invite His judgment in whatever form it may take in our life. You see, we know. We're just like Belshazzar. We know the consequences for doing that. Belshazzar knew the consequences for doing that, but he did it anyway. And today as we sit here, for those that are sitting in this place today, for those that would hear this some other way, you know. So if you choose, then you have to be willing to accept the consequences. And I don't think we are. Because the consequences might not be in this life. If you're lucky, they would be. I'd rather suffer the consequences in this life than to suffer the consequences of eternity. At least for Nebuchadnezzar, the consequences hit him while he still had a chance to turn his life around. We're not guaranteed that. Belshazzar wasn't. Now, I said at the beginning that this message was not one that ended in a negative tone, and it does not. You see, we can choose to ask forgiveness from God, if, and if we do, He has promised that He will wipe all of our sins away. Just as if we had never committed them. Every discretion, every indiscretion, everything we'd ever com com committed against God, when we ask for forgiveness, they are wiped away clean as if we had never done them. And then there's a promise that He will fill us with the Holy Spirit. It's a promise. Both of the redemption from sin and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And repentance is the only thing that washes away sins that are in our lives. And receiving the Spirit is what will help us live the lives that God has called us to live on this earth. Those are the two things that are the good news for us today. The best part of all is this. By doing those things, we don't have to worry about God's wrath being poured out on us. Instead, we have the promise of an eternity in heaven with Him when this life is over. And I'll close with this. While there are terrible consequences to not living the life that God has called us to live, there are amazing consequences for being obedient to God's plan of salvation that He has offered us. God bless you.